We are in a series that's going to bring us up to Christmas. We are in the book of Isaiah, looking at some incredible prophecies, both past um, that have been fulfilled, a bunch of prophecies about Jesus that we're going to be looking at as we head into the Advent season. Um, but this week, in light of what this week is, I want to really focus in on two words. Now, before I do, let me just say, can you believe we're already in, into the holiday season? <laughs> All right, you got the woos, then you got the I can't believe it, then you got the Grinches, and they're just quiet. So, but you can't skip Thanksgiving, right? All right. I, I always think, you know, we just skip Thanksgiving, go right to the Christmas decorations. Um, so I want to, in light of this week, in light of Thanksgiving, this moment in our nation, um, I want to spend some time talking about two words today. And those are gratitude and entitlement. Two very different things, gratitude and entitlement. I think you can all kind of feel you know, the, uh, the warmth in your heart of, uh, you know, if you're a father, perhaps, or a grandfather, you, you've maybe experienced your little girl, girl crawls up in your lap and says, thank you, daddy. And it's so special and so sweet, right? It melts your heart. Um, but then there's those other times, right? As a parent, or if you remember yourself being a kid, because gratitude isn't the normal heart condition of children naturally, Right? Entitlement is the heart condition of both small children and big children alike. And if you have kids or you've been a kid, you've encountered entitlement, I bet, haven't you? And here's just a little secret for all of you big kids in the room. We're just, we're just kids, small kids that grew up and learned it wasn't in our best interest to throw tantrums in public. Right? Hopefully we've matured a little... <laughs> But isn't it true that oftentimes we still feel a lot of entitlement in our heart? Um, a famous author, I think he was a philosopher, Des Descartes said this, I think, therefore I am. Anybody remember that? I think, therefore I am. I think a better phrase perhaps for our modern day culture in the U.S. is I am, therefore I deserve Now, if, if you don't believe in the Bible, um, I'll just kind of let you come up with your own theory of where that came from, because in, in my observation, it's innate to the heart of humanity, isn't it? The fact that I exist means I deserve a whole bunch of stuff. But if you do believe in the Bible, you recall all the way back in Genesis 3 when humankind was tempted and, and what was the temptation that humankind fell, fell to? That you are a creation placed here to serve and honor God. It was the same temptation of the serpent, of Satan, which is what? You can become like God. There's things that God's holding out on you that you're entitled to. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. In fact, even in our founding documents, um, I find it interesting. I love our founding documents. But there's this one thing, perhaps you remember it, in the Declaration. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and happiness. Ah, 
You're not as fast as Saturday night. They were faster. They had a little more coffee. What, what was wrong with that sentence? The pursuit of happy. Oh, that's right. Um, and, and alienable rights, I love our founding documents that recognize our rights to come from God because we're made in the image of God. And huma- humanity is um, that there's a sanctity of human life, that we do have unalienable rights that come from where? They're rooted in, in God, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But isn't it true that we often live like the other phrase is true? I think it is, Right. In fact, when it comes to entitlement, I find it interesting. I I was actually heartened last year when some of the early Thanksgiving Day doorbuster sales started going away, and they started putting them back to like 4 or 5 in the morning on the day after Thanksgiving. Because I'm like, as a culture, we can't even pause for one day to be thankful. (laughs) We are entitled to our flat screen TVs at doorbuster places and you know, we'll make somebody come into work at noon on Thanksgiving if we have to to get them, right? And here's why this conversation is so important. In our lives, entitlement is actually the enemy of gratitude. It goes hand in hand with ingratitude. And it actually has the potential to destroy relationships in your life to drive a wedge perhaps in a relationship with a spouse, to put a wedge between you and another family member. And it actually has the ability to derail your relationship with God and to destroy your contentment and joy in life. And why is that? How is that? Well, oftentimes in our relationship to God, if we have a heart that is locked in entitlement, like the original um, temptation of Eve, God's holding out on you. You deserve things. I exist, therefore I deserve. I'm, you know, I'm entitled to life, liberty, and happiness. If you have that kind of thinking in your heart, when it comes to your relationship with God, you're going to see your relationship with God as a religious activity that you're going to check off some boxes, and in return, God is supposed to act a certain way in your life. I'm going to check off some boxes when it comes to maybe generosity or maybe when it comes to church attendance or just what I feel like is being a good person, being nice to the old lady on the street corner. I've done my duty, and now God owes me fill in the blank. And here's the problem with that. God never promised fill in the blank. And when life doesn't go that way, which I, I, I know enough people to know life doesn't always go that way. We don't always get what we want what we think we're entitled to, all of a sudden it turns around and in our heart, it drives a wedge between us and God. And you end up losing contentment. You end up losing joy. You feel like God has abandoned you. And what's really happened is in your heart, you moved from a sense of gratitude as a creature of God who's here to honor him, to praise him, to give thanks to him, to, to someone with entitlement. And here's what we're going to see about gratitude today, is this. True gratitude comes from a real, from a, a revelation of God and a response to his grace. That if you want to understand where gratitude and thankfulness is rooted in, ultimately it's rooted in 
a revelation of who God is and then a response to his grace in your life. If you have your Bibles, why don't you start turning on over to Isaiah chapter 12. And I'm normally in the NIV, but today we're going to be in the, in the ESV, and I'm going to tell you why in just a second. So if you're on an app, that's easy for you. If not, sorry. Um, you can follow along on the screen. But the message of Isaiah, if you missed last week as we launched the series and kind of did an overview of the series, the, the message of Isaiah is he is a prophet um, that begins prophesying around the year 740 BC. He's living in a divided kingdom of Israel to the north, 10 tribes, and Judah to the south, a time um, of great Division where already a lot of Israel to the north has been hauled off into exile. There's the growing superpower of Assyria that um, they had a little bit of a reprieve from because they were busy on the um, eastern side and the northern side of the empire dealing with stuff. But as Isaiah begins to prophesy, the threat of Assyria coming and, and invading becomes more and more real. And they've had a king now for a about 50 years. That's been a relative time of peace. He's a relatively godly king in a, in a long string of some real bad ones. And, and he's a relatively godly king. But in spite of that, the people's hearts are full of idolatry. And the message Isaiah gets to bring them is basically, you, you're doomed. You're doomed. Jerusalem, Judea, you're doomed. And even though their, their final um, exile wouldn't come for more than an, another 100 years until 586 BC when Babylon would come and haul them off into captivity, about a century before that, as Isaiah prophesied, they'd already effectively reached the point of no return in their lives. Their hearts had turned to idolatry. There was religious hypocrisy and corruption. Um, God says, actually, when it came to idolatry and the way they're acting, he uses strong language in chapter one. We saw it last, last week. He said, you're be behaving like a whore. I mean, he uses strong language. And he warns of impending destruction. Now, they have an opportunity to turn and repent. And actually, there's some bright spots during Isaiah's ministry in, in, in the time of King Hezekiah when they actually repent for, for a period of time and God actually gives them a reprieve and saves them in a dramatic way that you can see in even, um, you can see in history, even non-biblical history and some of the secular history sources, uh, some unexplainable things that the Bible tells us what happened. God saved them in a dramatic, powerful way. But the people, as they're hearing the words of the prophet Isaiah, they can't wrap their minds around this. They think, we have the temple, we have the priesthood. They think in their hearts, we are entitled to God's blessing and protection. It is unthinkable to us that God would do actually the thing he promised to do 800 years before that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that if they abandoned him and went after idols, he would bring them into exile. He would remove them from the very promised land that he brought them to. So there's this this message of impending doom. And in the midst of this, Isaiah has these visions. And part of that is there's still hope. There's still hope. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, um, we mentioned last week, a lot of these prophecies, why these books are so confusing sometimes is because it feels like they kind of swirl. They aren't just A, B, C, D, you know, a straight trajectory line through this. 
A lot of times Isaiah will see prophecies and they'll be like mountain peaks that appear squished together until you get to the top of one and then see, oh, the next one's way further down the road. And so some of the things he's going to talk about are going to be things that would happen very short in a matter of years or, or very quick in his lifetime, in the lifetime of the people that are listening. Some of the things were going to be 120, 130 years later as they were exiled and he prophesied about that in incredible detail. Some of them were going to be 700 years later when Jesus would come or, uh, you know, 100, almost 200 years later when the exiles would return and he prophesied about all these things in incredible detail. And yet, if you're on the scene as he's prophesying them, it feels like all this stuff is very close. And some of the things he prophesied, we're still waiting for, for fulfillment in Jesus' second coming. And in chapter 11, Isaiah describes this, this perfect, perfect future reign of Jesus Christ that starts with humble beginnings, like the already and the not yet, that uh, the kingdom of God has come with Jesus first coming. It's here already as it grows in people's hearts, as people embrace Jesus and submit their lives to the king, but it won't come in fullness till Jesus comes again. But when he does, there'll be an irresistible power. There'll be absolute justice. There'll be perfect peace. The universal reach of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And Isaiah has these, this vision from God. And in the midst of messages of doom and darkness, Isaiah bursts out in a beautiful song of thanksgiving. A beautiful hymn of praise and thanksgiving. Here's what it says. Isaiah 12.1, it says this. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. So this beautiful song of praise and thanksgiving, when it says, I will give thanks to you, and that's in the ESV, the New American Standard, which are typically more literal word-for-word translations of the Bible. NIV is usually a little bit more understandable. But what's interesting is some of the translations use the words like NIV, I will praise you, God. And some use, I will thank you. I will give thanks. And, And here's the heart of this is the two are very closely related. Gratitude needs to be expressed. That's why we pause for a day So we don't just feel thankful to God, but we actually say thank you to him. That's part of the heart every week as we worship. It's not just so you can feel some goosebumps. It's to express praise and worship and thanksgiving to our God who's done so much for us. He's our salvation to praise him for what he did for us in Jesus. And gratitude's meant to be expressed. Praise, just read through the Psalms. Thanksgiving, praise, it goes together all the times. I will enter your gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter your courts with praise. They go together. They're meant to go together. And see, part of the expression of gratitude is part of the antidote to entitlement. When you actually pause for long enough to think about the things that God has done for you and then to express gratitude for it, it's hard, it's almost impossible (laughs) Can you be um, entitled and grateful at the same time? It's hard. Because a heart of gratitude is a heart that in humility recognizes you have received something you didn't earn. You've received a lot you didn't earn. 
That even though you worked hard in life, God placed you in the place he did and the family he did with the opportunities that he did. As you look at the business that he's allowed you to grow or at, you know the position you've managed to, to, to go in, you see the places where he stepped in and you're like, that was the hand of God. I didn't see that one coming. An atheist would call that luck, but ah, that wasn't luck. That was God. That was God. And sure, I worked hard, but God put me there. He gave me the opportunities I had. See, here's the thing. Gratitude in your heart is great. It's great to have a grateful heart. You've heard that? It's great to have a grateful heart, but gratitude when it's unexpressed communicates entitlement. Jesus, in in Luke, uh, there's a story where these, Jesus heals a whole bunch of these these guys and only one comes back to say thank you. And Jesus is like, didn't I heal 12 of you? And only one of you came back? See, gratitude, unexpressed gratitude, you may feel gratitude, but unless you express it, it comes across to either another person or to God as entitlement. Thanksgiving has to be expressed. Praise, thanksgiving. Isaiah 12, 3, he goes on to finish this psalm. And I'm going to give you, we're going to go through two whole chapters of the Bible today. But calm down. They're really short, okay? You're like, how long are we going to be here? All right, he goes on to finish this, this hymn or this song of praise. He says this, with joy, you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. He looks forward to this day when when God will actually dwell with us in a whole different way than he does right now in our hearts, in our lives through the Holy Spirit. A tangible presence of God. You see at the end of the book of Revelation. And so we begin to see in praise and in thanksgiving the antidote to entitlement. But where does that come from? Where did this come from in Isaiah's heart as he burst forth in this song of praise and thanksgiving? I'll tell you where it came from. Flip back a few pages to Isaiah chapter six. It came, to a, it came from a real revelation of who God is and what God had done for him. Who God is and what God had done for him. See, like we've been saying, true gratitude comes You have to have a a real revelation of who God is and it comes as a response to his grace. Isaiah chapter six, one says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, about 740 BC, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so we don't know exactly where Isaiah was. He, he may have been, you know, on a mountain or he may, have been, um, he may have been actually worshiping in the temple or he may have just had a vision of all this. But it's almost like, I get the sense almost that he's worshiping God in the temple and it's like a door opens to heaven. We'll see another example of that in Revelation. A door opening, 
a window to heaven, a doorway to heaven, he sees, and he sees up into the throne room of God. Remember, in Jewish thinking, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. Just like um, Eden, which is a mountain and a garden, and it's the place where heaven and earth meet. That's the heart of it. Now the temple is a representation of, of this on earth. And he sees as, as his vision is opened and as sort of the earthly layers that hold us back from seeing the reality of what's going on beyond just this physical realm, he actually is transported into the very throne room of God. And he sees the Lord sitting on the throne. And get this, how big is our God? Just the train of his robe fills the temple. This is a massive building. Solomon's temple. This is a wonder of the world. People came from all over the ancient world to check this place out. It was one of the wonders of the world. And, and he sees it in the train of the robe. Fills the temple. Glory. And it says this. Above him, above the Lord, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The triple repetition of holy communicates the gravity. Holy, set apart other than, beyond your comprehension, perfect in beauty, perfect in perfection, holiness, in love, in justice, in righteousness, holy, 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 set apart, set apart, other than, so much bigger than us. And it says the seraphim, the seraphim were there. And what you got to understand about seraphim in the scriptures, you see uh, really two terms, and they're kind of synonymous, seraphim and cherubim. And you've often heard the term angel. And actually the thing that isn't always clear um, from sort of tradition and culture is that angel is really more of a job description than a description of what a specific spiritual heavenly being is. It's a messenger, an angel is a messenger, and you see different hierarchies. You see an archangel, um, you know, the captain of angel armies. And, and then you see these, this term for a seraphim or cherubim, and it's really a job description of divine throne guardians. And what's interesting about those in this job description, um, these, these seraphim and cherubim are ne never sent to people to deliver messages. They are the ones who, who um, are the throne guardians around the holiness, around the sacred place of God, the presence of God. In fact, if you remember, after humankind sinned and was driven from the Garden of Eden, what was placed outside of the garden? Cherubim. To guard the sacred place from the profane, to keep sin away. And these beings... Um, are actually, in, in the scriptures, angels are never described as having inhuman features, wings, or multiple faces, um, despite what you may have seen on some, you know, Hallmark TV shows. Uh, angels don't have wings, okay? 
But these beings, these creatures, these heavenly creatures are described in all sorts of different pictures that you see. We'll see some of that in Revelation as well. And these guys are um, powerful beings right next to the very presence of God. And what you see is they have these multiple sets of wings they're described as in here, one covering their face, one covering their body. Why? Because even though they are perfect, holy beings, sinless, they are in the presence of God who is so much beyond anything we can comprehend that even they cover their faces they cover themselves and they cry out, holy, holy, holy. See, if you remember, um, as you put together some clues in scripture in Ezekiel 28, you see this picture where um, we believe Satan is referred to as a guardian cherubim placed in the Garden of Eden. And, the, and then pride rises up in his heart where he says, I'm not just going to worship the one true God. I'm going to become like God. I want to be God. We see in Isaiah 14, he says, I will make myself like the most high. I, God has created me. I'm so beautiful. I'm entitled not just to be a worshipful creature, a servant of God. I'm entitled to worship myself. And that was the original temptation of humankind. And it's been the original temptation ever since to place ourselves in the center of our lives in front of God. That's where entitlement is rooted in. God, I deserve. And I think we've done something in our culture, as you see, as you see this scripture, is perhaps, now I, I love the way we do church informally, you know, it's not like stand up, sit down, do all the stuff, right? Some of you grew up in maybe a more traditional uh, church tradition, but there's beauty in that too. And I think some of the beauty in that is that it communicates some of a sense of a little more awe and reverence sometimes. In our, in our Western informal culture, we tend to lose some of the gravity, some of the weight of the holiness of the glory of God, I think. The cherubim cry out, holy, holy, holy. A.W. Tozer said something that I, I found really, uh, he, he was a famous author and scholar. When it comes to our estimation of God, here's what he says. We must not think of God as the highest in an ascending order of being, starting with the single cell, which if you've ever studied it, isn't very simple, right? It's like you study it, you're like, there's no way that, that evolved by chance, random processes. Starting with the single cell and going on up from the fish to the bird, to the animal, to man, to angel, to cherub, to God. In other words, we see each one is just a little bit higher than the others. Humankind, a little lower than the angels, cherubs. Here's what he says. He says, God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. 
For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. Anybody ever, if you've been here a long time, we showed a couple of those talks by Louis Giglio, um, where he like talks about the size of the universe. And you keep zooming out and out and out. And our planet keeps getting to be smaller and smaller and smaller till it's a speck, till you can't see it, till you feel really, really small. And that universe God holds in the palm of his hand, that universe our God created, we can't, our minds can't even comprehend the infinite holiness and glory and power of our God. That's why these powerful beings can cry out, holy, 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 and cover their faces in the presence of God. And here's, here's the effect this has. Verse 4, it says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He has an epiphany as he's in this like fiery environment. Actually, one of the uh, words in the root of cherubim or seraphim is the burning ones. And he's in this environment, and, and he understands, I am, it says lost. Some of the versions say undone. Some say ruined. <laughs> That's the heart. I'm, I'm a goner. Because in the presence of a holy God, remember, this is Isaiah, the prophet with a heart for God, known by scholars as the prince of prophets. And yet he has a revelation about himself compared to a holy God, and he says, I'm done. Why? I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think Isaiah has a recognition of, I don't like some of the things that come out of my mouth. And I think I know where they actually come from. They come from my heart. And the people are full of idolatry. The people are full of hypocrisy. They say they love God, they serve God, and yet they go and do exactly what God says not to do. They show up and offer sacrifices and do the worship thing. We saw that last week, you know. And then they go and treat their fellow man with cruelty. They follow after idols. We see even the king, Hezekiah's father, sacrifices his own child to the demon idol Molech. He's like, I live among this people and, and, and I know my heart and my mouth. And he's undone. Woe is me. So this is kind of the heart behind what Paul writes in Romans when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. That, that in comparison to a holy God, 
Even those who, you know, check off the most boxes from a religious standpoint, <laughs> we're done. Apart from his grace, we are a goner. It says in the scripture, no one can see God and live. Isaiah's aware of that. But I love this. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What a beautiful picture of grace. He takes a burning coal. He, he comes, says he takes it from the altar. We don't know for sure if that's the altar in the, the temple. But we know that sacrifices are offered on the altar in the temple as a picture looking forward to when the ultimate sacrifice 700 years later would be made. And, and that was when Jesus would give his own life. For us, when God Himself would come in the flesh and give His life for us so that we could experience life in Him and forgiveness and being clean before Him. That's how what Isaiah said last week in chapter one though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. I'll take away the stain of sin. And in this picture, we see looking forward to what Jesus would do. We see Isaiah receive the grace of God. In verse 8, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, now, now catch this. Because what did we say? Well, when you're in the presence of the holy God like Isaiah was, there's no entitlement. There's no, well, God said, and I'm going to, you know. There's, there's no entitlement. There's the sense of, whoa, I am a goner, right? But then when God reveals his holy character and then he reveals his grace, here's, here's, here's where gratitude comes from. And here's where we, in Romans, we're saying, what, what is worship? Worship is living a life where we say, God, my life is yours. See, that's the ultimate thanksgiving is expressed in us saying, as a grateful response, what can I do but live for you? And here's, here's, here's how this goes. It says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. He doesn't stop and ask, where are we going? You know, how expensive is this? Gonna, what's this going to cost me? After the, the, the revelation of the holiness of God and the grace that he's just experienced, he just throws up his arm. Doesn't matter. I'm in. Doesn't matter. A life lived in grateful response understands that the debt that was paid for you, the grace that was offered to you was so much greater than anything you could ever do. A heart that understands that goes, God, I'm in. I'm yours. Thank you. I'm going to live my life for you. For, you, for your kingdom. And I get to have joy in the meantime. While I do that, real joy, not just fleeting happiness that comes from when I feel entitled and then I get the thing I thought I was entitled to and then I figure out it didn't actually give me happiness for more than like 60 seconds, right? 
Remember that this season? We all remember that. If you have kids, you know what the day after Christmas is like. The depression. They thought it was going to bring them happiness. You're like, eh, not, re- not really. The sugar crash, right? All mixed together. It's coming. Just get ready. <laughs> See, thankfulness leads to, to this heart of, God, my life is about you. God, I'm going to serve you. No strings attached. Here's my life, Lord. It's a blank check. It's the opposite of religious thinking, which is I can put God in, in my debt. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just attend enough and I'm going to be a, a kind enough person to the old lady on the street corner and I'm going to help a few people. I'm going to give a little bit. And I think God kind of now owes me. That's entitlement. The opposite is Woe is me, I am undone. But thank you for grace. Thank you for unmerited favor. For it is by grace, Ephesians, we we looked at this this summer, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God, lest anyone should boast. But it doesn't stop there. What's the response to it? Remember what, what Paul goes on to? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. A life of grateful response is the response to a heart that understands the holiness of God and the grace we've received from him. What our Savior did for us. Now, see, if you don't have this, this is where it's going to get hard for you. Because here's, here's what God, here's the mission God gives him. I mean, what we'd like to see is, awesome, you're going to become one of the greatest prophets of all time. You're going to go out. You're going to give the message. Everybody's going to repent and respond. I mean, Jonah kind of had a good gig, right? He didn't like it, but he he preached. They repented. They responded. Here's, Here's the message that God gives him, a hard mission. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, you're going you're gonna to go out and you're going to do good work and it really isn't going to do anything. Now, we see a couple spots where individuals turn and respond. We even see the nation at large under Hezekiah turn back, and they have this beautiful moment of reprieve and actually see God dramatically rescue them. So there's some moments, but all in all, he says, the nation is past the point of no return. Now, his heart, and this is the sovereignty of God that we have such a hard time wrapping our minds around, is that God knows everything. And so the invitation for his people to respond and repent and to actually literally change the course of their history is real. And yet this same God knows the end from the beginning and sees that the people's hearts are not going to be there and they will go into exile, which is how he predicts all of these things hundreds of years in advance. But this is hard for us, isn't it? Because entitlement tells us, God, I deserve to be great. I deserve to be important. And I'm going to respond to you and say, my life is yours. And now I want my life to look this way. Last week, we reminded you that Jewish tradition tells us that the prophet Isaiah died by being sawed in two. And the author of Hebrews writes about the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, about all these great people that lived long lives and God blessed them and prospered them. Um, And then there were some 
that wandered around with no home in caves that were sawn in two. And I think he may have been writing about the prophet Isaiah. But see, the revelation of God that he has carries him through that. It carries him through that. And he goes on, he says this, how long, O Lord? Okay, I'm going to have this mission. How long is that going to be true for my people? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes the people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. It's not going to be good, Isaiah. They're not going to listen. It's not going to be good. But even in the midst of a very hard task, there's hope. Verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak. But listen, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is in its stump. See, the, God is going to do the very thing he promised 800 years before this at Mount Sinai as he gave them the law. He said that if you do not follow the Lord your God, as he brings you into the promised land, he will remove you out of it. But God gives hope in this moment when he says this, but a remnant will remain. And they're going to go into exile, but then I'm going to bring them back. And the holy seed is in the stump. See, the root system's still alive. It looks from the outside like the thing's done and over that God's chosen people. It's a done deal. But a remnant who is faithful to God I've kept alive and I'm going to bring him back into the land and that remnant will lead to the bringing of the Messiah. And he has hope. This whole book is filled with hope. And you know where his hope and his gratitude come from? Where that psalm comes from after chapter 11 as God gives him the vision of the future? It comes from hope. And you know where that hope comes from? It comes from the expression of, from God's revelation of himself in chapter 6. It changed his life. The revelation of who God is and the grace he received in him. It gave him the strength to carry on. A life of grateful service to his king. Now what's interesting about this little scripture that we just read is that Jesus talks about it. And John, the, the author John, um, writes about this. He says, Jesus says this, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is right before the crucifixion. If you remember, you probably don't remember. A lot of you, you came in, you don't even remember we were in the book of John <laughs> for like two years, right? <laughs> you joined us here recently. This was a while back. And it says this, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them. Now listen to this. This is interesting. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory 
and spoke of him. (laughs) Who did Isaiah see in Isaiah chapter 6? The pre-incarnate son of God. That's who he saw. Who extended grace to him? Jesus. 700 years before he would take on flesh, fulfill the very prophecies written about him in Isaiah and give his life, not just for Isaiah, not just for the remnant of the Jewish people that would return to the land, but for anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And it's only a a response to that grace that's going to set you up for living a life of gratitude, a life empowered to serve Jesus. Now, I want to close with this, and Winston's going to come up. I want to close with one more little scripture from the very end of the book, the Bible, the big book. See, true gratitude comes from a revelation of God and a response to his grace. Um, Isaiah isn't the only servant of God that had this kind of revelation. About 750 years later, 800, maybe 800 years later, here's the revelation of the apostle John. It says in, in John 4, or Revelation 4, that He was praying and a door to heaven was opened and he saw the one seated on the throne and the lamb, the lamb, a lamb who had been slain. And it says this in Revelations 4, 8, and the four living creatures, John John gets to see these creatures too. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will. They existed and were created. And if you are here and you have given your life to Jesus, you've trusted in him and received the free gift of grace, you're going to experience that in person one day. And it will be beyond anything. Trust me. Sometimes we think like all these questions, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. No, you're not. It's not going to matter. You're going to be like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And my prayer is that you would have a little taste of that right now. A little taste of it. And the result would be because of his grace and a revelation of who he is that you would live your life in grateful response. That Thanksgiving wouldn't be a day where we pause for a few moments before we eat turkey but it would be a lifestyle of a life lived in grateful response to him. Would you stand? And we're going to close by singing a little bit of this course we sang earlier that's right out of this passage in Revelation. And, and, and as we sing it, 
Maybe you were a little tuned out during worship earlier. Um, Why don't you sing it this time with heart of grateful response?